Today we're going to continue on with a series that we have been on for quite a few weeks now in the book of Acts called The Church on Mission Blesses the Entire Family. We're going to read a passage, and in that passage, there is some controversy that's developed over the years as to exactly what that means. So together, let's read Acts chapter 16, 25 through 34. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors opened immediately, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped. So he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, Stop! Don't kill yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. That's where the controversy comes in. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. That's our text. Let's pray before we get into it. Thank you, Lord, that we have the word. We have the historical account transcribed by Luke, breathed into him by the Holy Spirit for our use today. May we glean from this passage the things that we need to bring conviction, to make changes, or to be a witness should there be somebody here who doesn't know Jesus as Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. Sometimes this passage is misunderstood because people think, well, if I get saved, everybody in my household gets saved too. And that's what it looks like it says at first glance. But that can't be true, can it? Wouldn't that contradict what we already know? Isn't salvation a personal response? I mean, what if somebody in the household don't want to be saved, but they got saved anyway? That wouldn't make any sense, would it? So we have to find out, well, what does this mean? And his household. What does that mean? So I brought the Greek translation. I'm going to read a little bit from it. And I'm stumbling a little bit, but I think I can get through it so that you can see a few things about it that are important. Acts chapter 16, verse 25. And about midnight, Paul and Silas 
praying, praised God in a hymn, and listened to them. The prisoners heard them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so as to be shaken the foundations of the jail. At once, the doors, all the doors were opened and all of the bonds were loosened. The jailer, having become awake and seeing the doors having been opened of the prison, was about to kill himself having drawn the sword supposing the prisoners to have escaped. But Paul called with a great loud voice saying, nothing do harm to thyself for we are all here. Then he, asking lights to be rushed in and trembling, fell down before Paul and Silas and leading them forward outside said, Sirs, what behooves it me to do that I may be saved? And they said to him, Believe on the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved thou and the household of thee. And they spoke to him the word of God with all the ones in the house of his. So in that translation or transliteration of the Greek you find out that we're talking about an audience that they didn't just talk to the jailer, they also were speaking with his family. Now that makes sense theologically that everybody that responded to the gospel all heard it. It's not like one person heard it and that blanket covered the whole family. Now there are people that believe that. And they believe that if you've got one good person in the family, everybody's all covered and taken care of, sort of like the umbrella concept. And that's not scriptural. It's not biblical. And so we see here there's a, there's a clarification when you look at the actual Greek language, the fact that they all heard the gospel. There's things in between that we don't know. Was this house right next to the jail? Or did they take a minute and go walk down the streets and find his family? Well, obviously we don't know that, but if they were all listening at the same time, then he must have taken them to his house. And that stands to reason since right afterwards he offered them a meal. Often we find historically when looking these things up that the people lived right near the jails. If they were a jailer, they lived right near where the jail was. It's difficult to imagine the torture and the excruciating pain Paul and Silas endured. The jailer beat the missionaries, leaving them swollen, lacerated, and sticky with blood. 
It would have been impossible for the wounded evangelists to lie down on their backs after that. The jailer kept the prisoners as secure as possible in what we might call the dungeon. Not like you see jails today with internet and comfortable places to rest in recreation areas and internet and all of those things. Not that. This would have been just a stone structure, damp, with very little light. Their feet were also put in stocks. Wooden stocks. Likely fastened to the wall. Such stocks were used as instruments of torture. They had a number of holes for the legs, which allowed for severe stretching of the torso and thus created excruciating pain. Sort of like a crucifixion without the cross. All of this makes the deliverance of this pair all the more dramatic. Think back. Peter slept in prison. Paul and Silas sing in prison. Both sleeping and singing are expressions of faith and peace in the Lord. Those hearing the men's raised voices were surely astonished by their example of faith in the midst of suffering. Silas and Paul probably lifted their voices in singing psalms, which they had learned because the psalms had been written years before. Quoting scripture and in pouring out their hearts in prayer. To all of this, the prisoners listen eagerly. And then suddenly it happens. God shakes the earth. Point one, God shakes things up. For everybody. We've learned in the gospel project that God shakes things up because he wants to teach something to people. God shakes things up because he wants to indicate something is about to happen. Sometimes he shakes things up to punish. We have examples. How about the flood? This is radical. How about the flood? Everybody's going to be wiped out except for the ones he chose to go inside the ark. How about the circumstances with David and Goliath, the likelihood of something like that occurring outside of God's direct involvement? How about the crucifixion, the innocent suffering death of our Savior? How about today, tsunamis, tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes? What do any of us have to do with starting or stopping those, maximizing or minimizing them? It's just a question of endurance. Some don't have a chance. They look up and there's a 20-foot wall of water 50 feet away. God does radical things. God shakes things up. Today we have personal tragedies as well. We have the sudden death of a loved one, a tragic accident with a loss of a limb or eyesight, 
unforeseen things. The next thing is that not only does God shake things up and it's radical, but it's unexplainable. It's not expected. Most people feel it's not deserved. When you have a whole group of people in Bangladesh, for example, where flooding comes and sweeps them away by the hundreds and thousands, how could a good God do something like that? Because there's a purpose in it and we don't see it. We don't feel people deserve it if they're innocent. Seems like there's no apparent reason for it. And it raises questions. Why me? That's the common question. Why did this happen to me? What do I do now? I've lost everything. We see the interviews of people whose house is flattened and everything in it's taken off and blown somewhere or smashed and destroyed. Loved ones taken. What do I do now? And the news people ask those questions and they don't know what they're going to do next. They just tearfully try to explain what happened. How can I keep going? What will I do? So God shakes things up. Here's an innocent jailer. He's got a family. We know that. Here's other prisoners there. And here's Paul and Silas. And suddenly the jail is all shaken up. The doors are opened. And the chains are loosed and fall to the floor. How could that be? Of course, the government officials would blame the jailer. You must have loosened these, you must have opened the doors. That's why he was taking the sword and thinking of killing himself. Not only does God shake things up, but unsaved people notice. Doesn't it say that the other jail prisoners heard these things and wondered, and then the earthquake? They take notice. Questions arise. Feelings of desperation. What am I supposed to do now? The jailer's thinking, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be blamed for this. Then we have the answers and an explanation that people try to give for this. Well, you see, uh, it's because the tectonic plates moved in a certain way way out there, hundreds of miles out in the ocean, causing this massive rise in the water, which moved towards the shore and caused that tsunami. Even if it caused a tsunami, who caused the plates to shift? Why is that happening? It's happening because the earth is cursed and is tilted 23 and a half degrees. And so the way it was designed to work, it doesn't work that way anymore. We weren't supposed to have tornadoes and hurricanes and things. We weren't even supposed to have rain. But now that the earth is tilted, our weather patterns, there is a pattern to them, but there's also an unpredictability that wasn't part of the design. But sin caused the earth to be cursed and it's tilted. 
one of the major things that's going to happen when Jesus comes back is it's going to be straightened back up again. Answers that people give, explanations that they give are well-meaning, but it's according to human logic and reason, which can't explain supernatural things. Often, the real meaning is not known or discovered by anyone at the time. One thing for sure, even though God shakes things up, and even though people notice, unsaved people notice as well, one thing is that lives are changed. Christians often feel the need to repent. If there's sin in a person's life, they feel it at that moment. They pray. They ask God to forgive. The unsaved people feel a need to get saved. What did the jailer say? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he wanted the result to transfer to his family. He saw and heard the gospel from two people singing in jail before the catastrophic event took place. So did the other prisoners. We don't have a record of their responses, but we do have the jailer's response. And he now knows he has seen and heard something so significant that he wants it, and he wants it for his family. Priorities get changed when drastic things happen. They get realigned. Things are much different than you expected them to be. Today, many people have their priorities out of alignment. And things keep happening that shouldn't happen. Things don't happen like they should. Or unexpected things occur and people aren't prepared for it. Now we do have our insurances. We do have our fallback systems of unemployment security and things like that. But they are not a substitute. I've worked in that industry. I was a financial planner. I see what people think and what they expect. Most people don't plan for anything. And when something happens, they have no contingencies. And some of the more spiritual people feel like, well, God can take care of me. I don't need contingencies. And I would challenge you, if you have a spare tire in your car, go out and take it out and throw it away. You don't need it. God can take care of you. But he also has revealed to us some common sense things that men can do. He has educated us. He's taught us in his word. When our priorities are out of alignment, nothing seems to, to work out right. For periods of time it does, and then things come apart. And we wonder, what, uh, what happened here? And God gets blamed for it. Today, for men, men's priorities seem to be, well, number one is work or job. That's about 95% of men's time. Work or job. <clears throat> well, I have to provide. I have to do whatever I need to do. 
If you do that, then number two, which is what most men's priority is today, is your wife. Your wife gets of that remaining 5%, 2 or 3%. And then your children, which would be third in today's priority list, get 1%. I mean, God gets half a percent and the ministry gets a quarter of a percent. That's how men live today. I did. I worked all the time. I felt like my job was to provide, and I realized at some point in my life when I was in my mid to late 30s that I wasn't providing as well as my father did for me, and I felt driven. I've got to do more. There's just things that I've got to do, and I did. I started businesses, and that took so much of my time, I hardly was home. And so there's a price that's paid for that. That's where it looks like what most people's priority list today. Men, work is number one, wife is number two, children number three, God is number four, and if there's anything left over, that's ministry. But when you ask people to do things, they don't have time for it. So ministry is almost like a zero. For women, today's women's priority is number one, children. Number two, husband, maybe. Number three, God. Number four, work. And number five, ministry. Maybe. So, there was an old story that I heard when I was in Bible school. And they said if there was a couple out in a canoe on the river and they had their, a child with them and the canoe tipped over, the man would try to save his wife, the woman would try to save her child. Interesting. So how do priorities get straightened out? God shakes things up with something radical. Maybe it's the notice you've got cancer. Maybe your company is about to go into chapter 11 or 7. Maybe you just had somebody break in your house and take all of your valuables and hand me down jewelry. Maybe, like Sandy Jones' family, it was a head-on collision. Maybe there was a tornado and you lost everything. God will shake things up if your priorities are wrong. And if he's tried before, but you weathered it because you had the means to rebuild or whatever took place, then you probably didn't get his message. So a little while later, there'll be another radical shakeup, maybe more radical than before. Because God wants our priorities to be this. For men, God is first. Wife is second, children third, work is fourth, ministry is last. That's God's priority. And if you don't have those priorities, then he will shake up your life with something dramatic. For women, God is first, your husband is second, your children are third, your work is fourth, and your ministry is last. 
The devil's in the habit of taking systems of order like this and turning them upside down. He's been doing it since the beginning. He turns it upside down. He keeps it intact, but he just reverses it so that before we know it, we're being dominated and our time is being used for the wrong things. It started in the Garden of Eden where God, with his theocratic kingdom plan, established himself as the authority, delegated that authority to man over creation on the earth. And then he formed Eve from which would come children and the rest. And so when she succumbed to temptation with Adam, all the devil did was turn that order completely upside down, putting himself at the top through creation on earth to the woman, to the man. And that's the order in which we operate today. So in order to change that order, God impresses on you the need for the gospel. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I've seen something I've never seen, and I cannot believe it. I don't even have an explanation for it. There's no reason why this earthquake came, the doors opened, and the chains fell off. I better find out what these guys are singing about. I had this teaching when I was in my mid-30s and determined that I would try to do things this way. And there was always stuff to try to crowd it out. Even ministry. I was on a pastoral staff in those days. And when we were driving by the church one day, my three-year-old son said, Dad, you forgot to turn in. We were going somewhere to do an errand or something, and we were just driving by the church. But he knew that every time we went there, I turned in and went there, and I was gone for the day. Dad, you forgot to turn in. Red flag, Jack, you're not spending enough time with your family. So one day walking along the Charles River in Boston, I was thinking about these things. Something's not right here. My presence is required every day. What can I do to delegate some of this away, or why do I have to be involved in all of this? The leadership of the church thought it was fine that I was involved. It would have been fine if I'd have been involved 24-7. Things were going well. They liked it. And so I started to cut back, and I said, you're going to have to replace me in this role, and in this role I can't, can't really justify doing it anymore. And that's what started the process of searching for other pastoral staff members to fulfill those responsibilities. Because one of the things I discovered in the teaching that I had was found in Deuteronomy. This made me realize I don't want something drastic like an earthquake to have to come into my life to teach me what is obviously something God wants. So when you look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is what you hear. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. That sounds like God has to be number one in your priority. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. I wasn't doing that. My job and my teaching and preaching and leadership was here and they were over here. Talk about them when you are at home. That's one time we could share the ministry and the things that I've been learning with the kids. When you are on the road, taking them to school, picking them up from their lessons, going to practice, all the things. Taking them with you when they're not busy and you just got somewhere to go and they can ride with you. When you are going to bed, they must be prayed with at night. You have to share the word at night. And when you're getting up, good morning. Do you get your children up or do they get you up? And then tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house. In other words, have reminders I see places where people have taped scriptures to different things, sometimes in the car, on the mirror, different places, to get the thoughts going that way instead of the news, newspaper, the other things, to find out you know, what is not going on in Washington or whatever else. So I started doing that. And one of my kids is here, she can tell you, every night we prayed with each child. Every night we read a Bible story for years. When they were infants, we read the Bible in pictures for little eyes. And there's a question, what do you see here? What do you see here? Get them thinking about things. Because I really believed these verses, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. When we took rides, we put music on. We sang together. It's the only way I could think of to put this into motion with the lifestyles we had and the busyness that was going on in our lives. Otherwise, God's going to shake things up with something radical. Not long after that, he did. And God called us to a different ministry, a radical change from where we were, what we were doing. He's done that several times in our lives. When God wants to get your attention, in most cases because your priorities are not right, especially if you're a Christian, he will shake things up. It will be a radical shakeup. Something you weren't expecting. Something major. There's all kinds of biblical precedents for it. Something you did not expect something you don't think you deserved and something you have no reason for why it happened at the time. So the message that I have for you today is 
what is God using in your life to teach you that your priorities are wrong? You could be a retired person that has no place to go particularly. Your time is whatever you put on the calendar. Maybe you have golf every day. Maybe you have clubs and things you're a part of. It's not that much of pressure like it used to be when you had to be at work and you had certain goals and things to accomplish. And if God has something else in mind for you, there'll be something radical that will come in and shake things up. Now, we've been learning in the Gospel Project that God does these things for your good. Not as punishment. Oh, yes, when the Babylonian captivity came in, people were slaughtered, tortured. Many of them were taken off into Babylon. The city was not immediately destroyed because there was more than one visit by Nebuchadnezzar. But he always set up his own king there who made sure that things were done wrong, evil. But the people knew it was coming. And even though they knew it was coming, they let it happen because they didn't change. So are we in the same boat today? Is the coronavirus something radical? Is he getting our attention? What's he saying? I don't know what he's saying to you, but it'll be something he's saying. We all are going to experience loss and change. Uh, my daughter called from school the other day and said that the opera production they've been practicing since last fall, they got to do the dress rehearsal and then it was canceled. They never got to perform it. All the hours spent practicing and learning and senior design, all that's all gone. And some of us will experience losses like that. So I think the proper approach with the coronavirus is what does God have in this for me? What is he saying to me? Because this is happening to me, not just me, but me. The earthquake affected everybody in the jail, not just Paul and Silas, not just the jailer. Everybody experienced it. But we're told the stories of who it affected and why it affected them. We don't know about the rest. How is it affecting me? How is God going to use this to change my priorities and rethink what I'm doing and how I'm doing it? That's the question. So let's pray together. Dear God, here I am in this place of worship in your presence trying to figure out the reasons why I'm going through this experience with the coronavirus where I, I can't buy certain things at the store, I can't go everywhere, I have to be careful with how close I get to people, whether I touch people or not, or how I keep from getting it myself. To be more secluded. Are you saying something here, God? Are you saying our country is in for a shocking surprise? We had devastating tornadoes in Tennessee. We've had earthquakes. We've had hurricanes. 
We've had things happen to us that didn't have to happen, but we see you as having divine purposes. Historically, you have brought dramatic, radical things into the lives of people for them to see that you are speaking. Are you speaking to us? Are you speaking to me? While we're praying, you're still bowed heads, your eyes are still closed. Examine yourself at this moment. Is God saying to you, you need to make a change here? And I'm going to see to it that you do. You'll have to choose that change, but I'm going to bring circumstances to bear in your life you weren't expecting. Because I love you. And I want the best results. Unfortunately, it's going to have to come through pain, suffering, loss. Is God saying that to you today? What if you've never really listened to God? You don't know what, what he's saying or if he's saying anything. Then you're the jailer. You're the guy that has heard things, but you never really did anything about it. But now that this has come into your life, now that these circumstances have changed, your ears are wide open and you are listening. Is God saying to you today, it's time. This is the day for you to accept me as your savior. So since I love you, I want you to spend eternity with me in heaven, not in Hades. Is he saying that to you today? If he is, right where you're seated, or if you're at home, pray this prayer. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I know it. But I believe Jesus died on the cross to save me from sin. I confess my sin. Please forgive me for it. As much as I know how to do this, I ask you to come into my heart and save me. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. While we're still praying, if you are one person, you don't even know what you were thinking about when you came in here today, but you just dropped in, or you've been here and you've heard this before, or you've had a dramatic thing happen radically in your life, and it's time, it's time. You just prayed that prayer. Raise your hand right now. And the only thing I can assume is you've already prayed it. You've already received Jesus as Savior. Then the second question is, why do bad things happen to good people? Because God is trying to get your attention. He wants you to make changes in your life. Would you be willing to say, Jack, I know I need to make some changes. Would you be willing to say that today? If so, just raise your hand. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yes. 
Sometimes this can be a little awkward and you may not feel like raising your hand, but you know it and you're thinking it. So I'm going to close and include you in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this message you've delivered to me for my purposes and my needs and that I'm sharing with others for their purposes and their needs. Thank you that Jesus died to save us from all of our sin, to give us the promise and hope of a great future in heaven as a joint heir. But I still have a purpose here. And unless my priorities are right, that purpose will never be realized. And the message that I was to give will be given to someone else. Thank you for teaching us and instructing us. Help us to have courage to pursue what you are saying to us and get the message and make the changes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. I wanted Meredith to read just something before we left. Um, we have family in China that are on the mission field, and uh, I wanted to see if she might would read just a brief statement from them. They've been under, they have not house arrest, I guess it would be separation for the past 47 days. Um, in Shingdu, uh, but they're missionaries there. Meredith, you want to read that, and then we'll we'll close out. Sure, um, I won't read the whole thing. It's it's very long. She's a, a very very good writer. This is my cousin's wife. Um, just some perspective. I think it goes along exactly with this uh, message this morning about what God does and what He's working in the midst of it all. So I'm going to kind of pick up midway through. Um, it says it's day 40 of staying at home. Stores and businesses closed except for the grocery. Day 40 of staying home and switching our entire school system to online learning, figuring out new platforms and spending more time on screens than we ever thought we should or would. Day of 40 of watching the sun come up without fail, tipping over the edge of the window where the wrens flit about the bare brown branches as if they didn't have a care in the world. So free, those little wrens, so watched over, may they never be caged. In these 40 days, we've been up and down, at times thankful to be here and determined to stand against the tide of fear and evacuation, at other times tired and sometimes even angry at the restrictions on our daily lives. There are feelings of loss and disappointment as our daily existence dwindles, and we feel like we're in a fight to keep our motivation, our stamina, or even just our wits about us. Um, they have five children, um, ranging teenagers down to about three. So there's seven of them in their little home. There are days of sure gratefulness that we get to be here in the thick of it all, together and not separated, with stories to tell again to each other someday. The kids have been all over the map as well. One is upbeat and full of good humor at most everything thrown their way. Two are slumped some days and full of ideas and energy the next. Another is really struggling to stay out of the depths, struggling to see an end in sight and to make keep from scowling at the world inwardly and outwardly. Walking through all of their little battles in addition to my own can be intimidating. I take it one day at a time. I lament to my husband. I try not to show my frustration. I keep saying the same things, giving the same ideas, rehearsing the same lines of hope and purpose. This morning as I ran on the treadmill, I went on a roller coaster of emotions. Thankfulness one minute for even having a treadmill and an old hand-me-down that is still going strong. 
to frustration at feeling like a hamster on a wheel, staring at a wall as my legs move beneath me, a wall covered in black skid marks from the basketball being thrown against it by the boys, thankful that they have found a way to stay moving and that they have a wall to throw a ball against, that they have a ball, frustration that their seasons have been canceled, that they are nearly bursting with the need to get out and play and shoot and run hard and sweat and not lose all the skills they worked so hard to gain. I think, too, that it's possible we are not as fragile as we might think. We modern people talk about our breaking points. We even joke about them. But I think about people like Corey Ten Boom or Dietrich Bonhoeffer or a myriad of others before me, and I think maybe our breaking points should be a little further down the road than they are. We are broken. I know we're broken. I know we don't have it all together and that we have nothing to boast about in ourselves. I know it's good to be real about our broken messy lives and not put the, this false front or pretend that everything is okay when it's not. And I'm happy to say that I'm not okay. This family is not okay. Every day there are f about 50 moments of not okayness, but we are also okay. I'm not here to say that we should pretend, but to question whether we can handle our cultural transparency or brokenness. As parents, we do this all the time, and as a leader in any capacity, you most likely do this to some degree. You put on this brave face even when you don't feel brave, and you push through even when you're not sure of the outcome, and you find that you and maybe some of your people are better for it. And we want our kids to grow to do this, to be resilient people who are not crushed by every difficult place. We can walk through hard times, and it's possible that we cracked and broken people as we are do not have to fall apart. We don't have to break down and quit our jobs or our post. We can be formed and shaped by our difficulties, pressed down but not obliterated. I'll skip some of this. Often when I run on my hamster wheel, I let the words of a popular worship song that is prob probably overplayed and maybe even irritating to some wash over me because it speaks a little too honestly to where I currently find my feet. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander, and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. This, to me, is the best part of the whole thing. If I only go where I feel safe, is that trust? If I only follow where I am guaranteed to be okay, health or otherwise, will my faith grow? If I only wander as far as I have placed my own protective boundaries, will I know the ever-sweeter presence of the Savior who would take me to the heights? Or will I be safe but stunted? Or will I be safe or stunted? Tomorrow is another day, and there will be more struggles. There will be more grace, and I will keep my eyes above the waves, ways that still know his name. We are only 40 days in, and I pray there won't be another 40, but in the meantime, he's working. So as we leave today, I think it's a reminder as we leave, expect the unexpected. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Make sure that you're signed up so that we can communicate with you guys. You can do that through info uh, and texting that to 352-358-7770. Be mindful of your family. Take care of your family. Might be mindful of your neighbors and what's going on in their lives. And in the midst of this, would you be expecting that God is doing something? Would you do that? Because I believe he is. I don't believe he is, but Mike, I know he is. I bless you. 
I pray for you as you leave. Don't catch the virus. <laughs> You'll make a difference. God bless.